0: He's number 21 in your Duke Media Guide, but he's number one in your hearts. Welcome to episode 34 the Sports PR Podcast. This episode features the man, the myth, the illustrator, Jay Billis. Um, This conversation was so nice that we had to have it twice uh, earlier in the week. Uh, He and I had a conversation about some dissertation topics uh, and the focus of my research at Mercer and then re-recorded it as a podcast uh, later this week. So Jay is so he, he's so in touch with what's going on. He, he's pragmatic, he's intelligent, and I think he looks at things through a, a very fair lens. So hopefully you guys really enjoy it. Um, I could have spoken with Jay for hours on end. Uh, really a funny guy. I don't think he gives enough credit for how funny he is. And many women in the world will be very jealous of his large closet for his shoes. So without further ado, here is episode 34 of the Sports PR Podcast, featuring Jay Billis.
1: Great. Well, we'll, we'll start off from the top. Um, so, Jay, you're everywhere. You're on TV, you're college game day sites, um, you've been to basketball clinics, speaking engagements, I mean, you still do some litigation here and there, and then you have a family. How in the world are you able to juggle everything with so much on your plate?
2: Well, it's nice to just say that it sounds like it's a really difficult task. It's really not that hard. Uh, You know, my main job has been for the last 20 years ESPN, and I I was a practicing lawyer full-time for seven or eight years uh, back in the 90s. But once I hit 2000, 2001, it's been primarily all basketball and I took a I took a designation with my firm called Elf Council, which is a very fancy way of saying that I don't carry the load that I used to. So it's not like the law has taken away much of my time as it, as it used to take away a, a ton of my attention. But uh, uh I still got my yeah, I'm still got my license in good shape. So if uh if there's a divorce or name change or a ticket you need taken care of, I can still take care of it. But I don't uh, I don't do the day to day caseload that i used to but like anybody else chris it's uh it's primarily you know you try to prioritize things and uh and during the basketball season i'm away quite a bit but uh but when i'm not i i always uh try to carve out as much time as i can for my family and the truth is with my schedule i probably get more time with my family than my colleagues do that are hoofing it day-to-day uh you know full-time as lawyers they might not travel as much but they uh you know they have their face buried in work uh, uh, a lot more than I do. And when I'm working with basketball, I may be away, but uh, but it's a it's a labor of love. So whatever whatever some people call work, uh, it, it's a heck of a lot of fun for me. I'm I'm very very lucky
1: to be doing what I'm doing. And since and college basketball season's so long, you know I've noticed you know knowing you throughout the years, you're very well read. You're up to date on everything, and with so much preparation with basketball being year round and. Then, keeping up with all the events in the NCAA, college sports and pro sports. How do you carve out time for yourself to, to read, gain knowledge, be caught up on, on the latest that's going on?
2: Well, it's like anybody else. I mean, I read uh, whatever's relevant uh, each day. Uh, I try not to – I make sure that I talk to, to coaches constantly so I'm keeping up with everything that's going on. And I, I deal a lot with administrators. I, I may be a little bit different but I'm, I'm I'm very interested in policy and always have been. But uh, you know, primarily my job's a basketball analyst. So I'm I'm looking at film and watching teams and attending games and practices and that's that takes up the majority of my time. The other stuff, uh, you know, I try to keep on top of, but I can't say that I'm reading the NCAA Bulletin every time it comes out. I I keep in tr- I keep track of the big stuff mm-hmm. and uh and I try to keep track of, of whatever's going on, but uh but just because it's happening doesn't mean it requires my comments. Uh so I don't I don't comment on every little thing. It's just
1: I, I pick my spots with regard to policy. So uh switching gears to, to your love of rap, did, do your kids roll your eyes every time they, they see your tweets, I gotta go to work with rap lyrics and they just think, ah, Dad's just being funny, he's just one of us.
2: Well they don't they certainly don't think I'm one of them. Uh, but uh, <laughs> you know, I think uh you know, I've I've always had a, a love for music and uh you know i like to think i got a pretty good sense of humor so i i have the same uh same interest as a lot of my friends do uh so i i i put it out there twitter has been a thing my wife really encouraged me to get involved in i really didn't care for it at first um mm-hmm. i probably didn't understand the medium but uh it was her opinion that i needed to to let people know that i was uh i had more going on than just uh you know basketball X and O stuff that I didn't sit in my basement all day and, and break down film. But I had some other interests out there, so that's been a, that's been a nice thing. And also, honestly, it's allowed me to engage with fans. Like I go back and forth with with uh, with fans a lot, and uh, and it's not it doesn't mean I'm going back and forth with just certain people. It's whatever strikes my attention that one day, and I'll I'll go back and forth for a good period of time with people, and uh, and that's been really fun. Uh, you know, sometimes I'll go back and forth with somebody who's got 50 followers. Another time it's somebody who's a higher-profile person. It, it really doesn't matter. It's whatever the, the most interesting topic may be. And if I've got the time to do it, I, I really enjoy it.
1: So so outside of, of your love of rap, what what kind of stuff is on your iPod right now that you listen to on the road?
2: Everything. Um,
1: you know, I, I grew up in
2: the, uh, you know, my formative years were the 1970s. I was born in 1963, so I'm 52 years old. Uh, but I uh, I listen to uh, I've always I've always liked the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin and i am ai I'm am uh, I like rock music but I've always enjoyed rap music hip hop and the like R&B uh, so you name it I've I've got just about everything the only thing I don't really get into that some of my friends do is uh, I I I don't it's not that I dislike country music but it's not been something that's been at the at or near the top of my list so. I do listen to it, but it's not, uh, it's not taking up a lot of space in my iTunes collection.
1: Understood. I can respect that. Um, so one thing that people don't know about you is uh, you're an author. You wrote the book Toughness. I've actually read it. It's really good. It can, you know, you didn't really, you, you know, when we talked the other day, you said you didn't uncover some big secret. You just gave your viewpoint. What was the premise behind it and the inspiration, and how were you able to carve out time for such a large project like that? well it, it
2: in large measure, it just kind of happened.
1: um it wasn't necessarily happenstance, but it just there was
2: something that triggered it i, I growing up and playing you know basketball and baseball the coaches were always talking about hey, you got be tougher and you got to be tougher than that and they, they always preached toughness and talked about it, but honestly, it was never really defined. It was something that you kind of learned through osmosis and you know, I like to think I, look, I know I wasn't the toughest player out there, but i I'd like to think I wasn't without a measure of toughness as well but it was something I always wanted to to be you know to be tougher, and so uh, you know when I was doing you know when I got involved in broadcasting, I was watching a game at home, and there was a, there was a game on where a player uh, was was basically just one big bully out on the court and kind of throwing his weight around, and uh, and an announcer had talked about what a tough player he was, and I thought you know this guy's not tough, he's just a bully. And uh, so I, I I decided to write an article. You know, that experience moved me to write an article on what toughness meant to me. And so, you know, it was a pretty lengthy article for ESPN.com, but I wrote it and then sent it in to my editor and said, look, you didn't ask for this, but if you want it, fine. If you don't, that's fine, too. But it, I was moved to write this. And they, they put it up on the website. They really did a nice job presenting it with pictures and the like. And uh, it, it, it was unbelievable. I, I didn't expect anything from it. It was just something that moved me, and it resonated with a lot of coaches, teachers, administrators, uh, people in the military, uh, you know, corporate people, you name it, and I started getting all these emails literally from around the world about it, and uh, teams had, had given they, – they'd been going over it with their players, coaches with their players, and uh, I'd had players that would say, you know, I read your article, and I really took it to heart, and I, I had i never made my high school team, because I didn't know what my coaches wanted from me. I read this article, and I made my high school team, or I became a starter on my high school team, things like that, and and then uh, college coaches starting re- started reaching out, saying, hey, we've used this with our team, and it's really started a conversation with us, and it's made us better, and uh, that was really gratifying and really nice, and, and when I sort of understood that there was an appetite for this my wife again was the one that talked me into writing a book and I didn't want the book to be about basketball I wanted to be uh, about more than that and so I sought out the uh, the thoughts and the opinions and researched my friends first of all people that I knew and uh, whether it was uh, uh, someone I knew with NASA or uh, you know Mia Hamm or Sage Steele at ESPN or Doris Burke or self, Bob Knight, you name it, Mike Cheshevsky. Uh I, I and I was able to build up um, a catalog of research on the subject and the hard part really for me was not having ever written a book before, was uh putting it all together and uh putting it in, in a coherent form with uh, twelve chapters or all that and uh trying to make it presentable and palatable um, and um hopefully I did that uh but it's it's you know the book came out over three years ago and uh I'm I'm you know, eternally grateful that people still one, they're still buying it, which shocks me. But the other part is I, I hear from people all the time saying, hey, I just got a, a letter the other day from a high school coach in Alabama saying that he used it with his team and uh and he, he was very kind to say he was grateful for the book. But I, I was grateful and humbled by the fact that the concept has uh in the in the presentation of the book has, has helped people whether it's uh you know a, a, cor- a corporate group or a, you know a sales unit or whether it's uh, uh someone in the military whatever it started a conversation about prioritizing what's important and uh and so i think a lot of teams that have used it it hasn't necessarily been something they said okay well uh, Bill says this so i'm going to do this it's just they've been able to define it for themselves and uh, define what the standard is that they want to meet, and I think that
1: that's been the most uh, most interesting and gratifying thing about the whole project.
2: Would Would you ever
1: want to write another book if that um, opportunity ever presented itself?
2: Well, it has presented itself. Um, you know, I, I I wasn't privy to this before, but once you once you write a book that hits the bestseller list and sells, then publishers want another one. And uh, I, I haven't really been moved to write another one yet. We've had some discussions about something out and some other projects, but um, I haven't, nothing has really sparked my interest quite like the the concept of toughness did, but Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not ending any, any possibility that I may do this in the future. And I think I may, but, uh, but not right now. I mean, it's, it's a year or two away if I, uh, if I decide to do it, but you, you never know. I mean, uh, there are so many things to write about, and uh, I think I would more write about um, you know basketball in the context of something like Bill Simmons did, where you did did something in that regard for college basketball. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm not in any I'm not in any hurry to do it, and you, you never know. I may do it
1: down the line, but I'm not going to do it anytime soon. That's understood. Well, I think one book topic for you would be your extensive sneaker collection, uh, which has been well documented. <laughs> um, now, the million dollar question I have, Jay. Do you have a pair of Yeezys?
2: Uh not yet,
1: but uh but I'm working on it. And uh I will take a pair of anything that's
2: for free. <laughs> but uh but I uh I have a ridiculously large uh sneaker collection and you know, I I grew up in the era where, where you know, where probably you did where you know for guys, you know sneakers have been a currency almost and uh so I I, I have way too many of them, but I've always really enjoyed it It's something that uh I, I sadly it must be a, a genetic thing cuz my son is the same way. He uh, he wears the same shoe size as I do, even though he's only six three, and uh, and I uh, he poaches a lot out of my closet, so I
1: got <laughs> I got to get a lot for that thing. Uh, are you the man to thank for the the suit and sneaker look? Because obviously, I think it looks pretty good on on people like you. But were you the are you the reason why so many anchors do that now?
2: I don't know. I mean, I, I don't. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take credit for that. But I've I've only done it just because it's comfortable for me. It's something I've always liked doing. Uh, you know, some people like it, some people don't. But uh, but at my age, I don't really care what people think anymore. I just wear what I like, and it uh, makes it a lot easier when I'm packing. I don't. I only have to pack, you know, pairs of sneakers rather than dress shoes. But yeah, I've, I've been doing that for a while, and uh, I take my spots. I don't wear them into the office as much as uh, as perhaps I
1: I wear them on the air. But I, I do wear them. Understood. Um, and and no BS when I say this, but I think you're you're one of the most fair TV commentators there is, regardless of sport. And you've been quoted as saying that you give out your phone number to referees. In the event that they hear something you said that may not be accurate or something they want to discuss, what was the reception like of that? And how many referees do you get to talk to during the season to discuss some things that were said on television?
2: Well, the reception's been really positive. You know, whenever I speak to a group, uh, you know, every once in a while, a supervisor of officials will ask you to come in and speak to the referees when they have a meeting. And the first thing I do, whether it's for officials or, or when I speak with coaches, whatever, most every coach has my number, but I put my number up and say, hey, here's my cell phone number, call me anytime. Do you ever hear anything you don't like or you disagree with? or It doesn't have to be about you or your game. Or if I get a rule wrong or a, an interpretation wrong, uh, I want to hear about it. And you know, just like the officials do, I want to get it right, and, uh, and all my colleagues do. So I welcome that kind of criticism. Um, And I I think the one reason that it resonates with officials more is, you know, I think for a lot of years, um, uh, officials' calls were not the subject of discussion by announcers. You know, it's just kind of, you know, you you just took it for what it was and didn't really opine on whether that was a good call or bad call. And uh, years ago, I just decided, you know what, everybody's thinking it, and there's no reason for me to clam up about this. And I'm, I'm not opining on every call. But if there are certain calls that, that happen in the course of a game, and you say that's not the right call, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Now, some of my friends in officiating don't agree with me. They think that that we should stay out of that realm altogether. I don't happen to agree with that. But that's one. That's the main reason I give my my number to officials is because I want them to understand. Hey, listen, this wasn't personal, and it, and I have never opined on good official, bad official. You know, you'll hear some guys, uh, some announcers at times say. Well, so and so is a great official but and you know, I don't know whether guys are good officials or bad officials. I don't mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not grading them. I don't I don't look at it that way. Most of the games I do, by the time the game's over five days later, I can't remember who the officials were. And that's probably a compliment for the referees. But I opine on on a particular call at the time and here's the, the, the rule that I have for myself and I don't want to say it's a hard and fast rule, but this is the rule I have. You know, from where I sit, if I can tell uh, in real time, that was a bad call. Then I'll say so. If I have to look at a replay to determine it, then I'm not going to even comment on it. Then, then the, the official, you, you, the, the picture will tell us whether it was right or wrong. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, you know, I like—I I just don't like the idea of, of carving out something so important in the game and pretending like it doesn't exist. Because every fan has an opinion on a call, and they may be right or wrong. I don't know, but. Uh, but I know what I think, and I don't see if I think something why I should keep it a secret when my job is to, to uh, chronicle games. game. Uh, so I want the officials to know, hey, listen, if, if you think I've made a mistake, I want to hear about it. If I get a rule wrong or if I've interpreted it incorrectly. Or, you know, one thing, Chris, that's really, I think, important in my job, I've always felt that my job is to say the right thing at the right time in the right tone. And sometimes you get your tone wrong. And uh, you may be passionate about something or, or excited or worked up over something. And the, the tone conveys the wrong message. And so if the tone's wrong, I want to know about it. And I will talk to an official or a coach or a player all they want about something. And, and usually we reach a greater understanding afterwards. Sometimes I'm right. Sometimes I'm wrong. I like to think I'm right more often than wrong. But, uh, but I've never had an interaction with an official that's been negative. And I've never had an interaction with an official where I didn't come away uh, learning something. And uh, that's why I've always felt like officials should talk after games. Not to mm-hmm. hear people say accountability. Well, the officials need to be accountable. I don't understand what that means when they say it. The reason I'd like to hear an official um, you know, be interviewed after a game is because I think everyone associated with the game would be smarter for it's not to It's not to put the official on the spot and to hold their feet to the fire on a call or calls, but when things do happen, I think it's really uh, enlightening to hear the officials' interpretation of things, and one thing that we, we can all agree on, and that is the officials are the law of the court, are the law of the field, what they say goes. Now, having it explained afterwards will not change the call, nor should it, mm-hmm. but it, it it increases our level of understanding about what's going on out there, and I think that's that's good for everybody, including, selfishly, I'd say, for the officials. But reasonable minds can differ. Some people see it differently than I do. But I think that would really help uh, help the
1: game overall if we had more information about that rather than less. I, I can I tend to agree with that, absolutely. So switching uh, in another direction surrounding the initial discussion in um, CLA and student-athletes, so you know that my dissertation ideas around, creating an academic model for, for student-athletes and just really the history of, of academic issues throughout. And one thing that I've learned throughout my research, and I knew this before working in athletics, is that the term student-athlete is made up. It's, it's not in the dictionary. It was created by the NCAA. It, are we too far down the rabbit hole for us to stop using that term, or is there an opportunity for the NCAA schools to reverse course and to stop using them and just refer to them as students or athletes?
2: Well, it, it depends on what context. Like, I'm not a fan of the term student-athlete. Uh, as you know, it was a made-up term uh, that when Walter Byers was the, uh, the, the executive director of the NCAA, where, whereby the NCAA could attempt to avoid workers' compensation claims by, by players. And they could, they could uh, essentially say they're not employees, they're students. Uh, and, it's, and even though this is a business that's a multi-billion-dollar business, that, that I don't think anybody would argue is, is almost professional in every way, except for the way the athlete is compensated. Um, you know, it's, it's it's a gigantic interstate commerce industry. Um, you know, it, it, I think that that it drives me crazy when I hear the term "student athlete" uh, at an NCAA tournament press conference. They'll say, "Well, uh, you know, question for the coaches uh, uh, will come after uh, we hear from the student athletes." Are there any questions for the student athletes? That drives me nuts. I mean, when they're at an athletic event, they're players, Mm -hmm. and uh, you know they don't say student athlete in in class. They're students. So when they're in class, they're a student, and when they're playing, they're a player. And I, you know, I believe in the duality of man. I think we can do that. That's not that big of a deal. Uh, So I have a problem with the way that term is used and the reasons it's put into practice. But we're never going to get you're never going to get NCAA people to stop using it. Uh, they do it for legal reasons, and they're going to keep doing it for legal reasons. So that's never going to stop. Um, but I don't I don't see how when it's not used in any other context, nobody else refers to it. There's no such thing as a student thespian or student musician or anything like that. Um, I don't see why we have to have that carved out for an athlete, uh, uh, especially when they say, you know, they're students just like any other student, and why are we referring to them uh, differently than we do any other students? Uh, it, it doesn't make a whole
1: lot of sense to me, uh, given the rhetoric that the NCAA uses. And, and it's always struck me, from from a PR standpoint, that for five or six years, their PSA was, you know, 99% of, of athletes go pro in something other than sports. Do you think that PSA terminology was was used to kind of soften people's stance against that student athlete term, and to prove that hey, we are educating these kids? No, I think it was so that they, they don't have to pay
2: them. The idea that if they're not if they're not going to be – if a, a large percentage of them are going to be professionals afterwards, therefore they're not worth anything in college, which is uh, – I mean, I don't, don't mean to be intemperate here, but that's just a lie. Mm-hmm. And to say that 99% or whatever percentage they use go pro in something other than sports is is uh, an even bigger lie because such a large number of, of players go into athletics – whether they go into coaching or administration or some other form of, of employment that has to do with athletics. Um, so, you know, you can just look at the the roster of coaches in NCAA basketball. They all, almost all of them without exception, played sports in college. So where do they fit in on that percentage? And sure. uh, that thing doesn't make any sense. And the other part that doesn't make any sense is they're using division one, division two, II, division three, and, and small college uh among the 1100 ncaa institutions to come to that ridiculous number and that that doesn't make any sense and it's not right um so i don't know why they do it uh to me it matters not you know they're trying to sell the amateur ideal and justify why they can make billions of dollars selling these amateurs and that coaches make millions of dollars and schools reap in uh frankly they reap in uh together billions of dollars the multi-billion-dollar industry, how it matters, how many of them play professional basketball in the end, because they're only counting the NBA and, and the NFL or Major League Baseball or all that stuff. They're not counting how many of them make money in the game outside mm-hmm. of of those avenues. So it's it's really kind of a misdirection, and uh, and it's what they're trying to do is sell people on the idea that. Uh, don't you know don't fall for the players should get more than just the scholarship and and Chris, as you know, the scholarship is an amount it's a cost figure that is paid to the school by the school. All it is is a money transfer from one account at the school into another, mm-hmm. so the school isn't out anything there except what you might consider to be the opportunity cost of having a paying student in that chair or in that position in a in a, in a class. And, uh, and hey, if they could make more money by having paying students, they would have paying students. They make more money off athletics and that's why they have athletics. When,
1: when you were at Duke, you were a member of the, uh, Interplay's Long Range Planning Committee. How, how did that experience, you know, change your view of how athletics worked and, and moving forward into your professional career?
2: Well, I don't know that it changed it. It informed it. Uh, I, I don't know that I had a, a, a good view of, of how things worked until I became a member of the NCAA Long Range Planning Committee, and I was one of two student members on that committee. I was on it for over two years, and uh, and they were so good to me. I mean, I was on I was on that committee with some of the great administrators in NCAA history. You know, Wayne Duke, the, the uh, commissioner of the Big Ten, Bill Flynn, who was at Boston College as their athletic director. Dick Perry was the AD at Southern Cal. I mean, it was a an amazing group of people, and I'll be forever grateful for how I was treated. They treated me so well, uh, and I learned a lot. I, I But it's, I kind of learned how the sausage was made, and while I loved the people, uh, I did not agree with the policy. And there were times when I would speak up with regard to policy issues, and I don't want to say I wasn't taken seriously because I was certainly listened to, but uh, but my concerns were because they were policy issues that differed with the way the NCAA did things. They were they were relatively quickly dismissed, and that's not that's not to cast aspersions on individuals. And, and that's one thing that I learned, Chris, from that is that we can differ on policy, but there's no argument that the people within the
1: structure are great.
2: Uh, the, the overwhelming majority of people that I deal with uh, at NCAA member institutions or or at the NCAA office in Indianapolis are great people. Not all of them, and not all broadcasters are great people, and not all coaches are great people, and but, but so not all administrators are great people. There, there are some folks there that uh, that shouldn't be there, but there aren't that many. Most of them are terrific, and uh, so I've always separated. While I may differ greatly with people, with some people within the structure on policy, uh, it's not about them. I, I like them very much, and I hope they like me. But if they don't, uh, we have a great level of respect for one another. We can. We can differ without being disagreeable about it, but uh, but I, I I don't think it's any secret that there are several policy matters where I think the NCAA is dead wrong. I think they've been proven wrong in court and otherwise. Uh, but you know the majority of things the NCAA does is good, are good. But uh, but there's a there's a too big of a of a part of what goes on within the NCAA structure that's just frankly wrong, and goes. Goes against the rhetoric that they put out there and what they say they're doing. Uh, uh, it, it's it's absolutely backward and uh, and and as as Mark Emmert likes to say,
1: antithetical. Um, it, it doesn't live up to, to the ideals that they put out there for us. During my time in athletics, you know, I spent over ten years at various schools, and one of the things that I hated was if, if I had to bring players to, to the obligations out of town, and then I had to explain to them the rules of DM how much money I was allowed to give them or how much I was having to be able to buy for them. If I wanted to take them through a movie, I had to get paperwork through compliance about entertainment. It's all this stupid red tape nonsense. So with all these dumb policies, who, who do you think is to blame for all this over the years of, of these issues being compounded up, upon one another?
2: Well, the NCAA is to blame
1: um, and, and
2: there's no other way to, to put it. The, 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 College sports are overregulated, and like you're saying, there are so many ridiculously stupid rules that are of zero consequence in the grand scheme of things. That cause and that have caused the the compliance industry to become an industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, major colleges have gigantic compliance departments that are every bit as big as their medical compliance, and there's no reason for that. Uh, there, there's no reason why as a, a coach should have to pick up the phone uh, as they had to several years ago and say. Now, wait a minute. If we have, if we have cornflakes and muffins after a uh, morning workout, is that considered a meal? And someone has to call the NCAA office. I mean, I've had coaches tell me when they were looking for interpretations, they would have three different staff members call the NCAA separately and ask for an interpretation of the same rule. And they would get three different responses and they would just pick the response they liked best and do it that way. And and you know when you've got something like that over things that are zero consequence, I don't I don't understand why we have those kind of rules. And
1: um, it, it's
2: we've got a we've got a process, as you know, where too many people say, well, that's not fair. Um, you know, Alabama's got a bigger locker room. That's not fair. And they feed their players. That's not fair. And it, it it sounds like a bunch of third graders talking about, well, his cake was bigger at the birthday party. That's not fair. And, you know, it's not fair. And it's not fair that Nick Saban makes $7 million and the coach of South Alabama makes, makes 500000 It's It's not fair, but that's the way the world works. And I think the way this should work is um, all these schools that we're talking about that are member institutions are, are accredited institutions of higher learning. They all have 30,000 employees. Like I went to Duke. Duke's a smaller school. Uh, undergraduate-wise, I think it's got 7,000 undergraduate students. It's got 30,000 employees. Uh, they don't need to be told what to spend on food and, and and travel and you know when they can practice and how much they can practice. Uh, that's not necessary. Those things aren't important. Uh, they can all figure that out for themselves. I think what, what the NCAA should be concerned with, if I could be so bold, is to say they, they should be concerned with running championships and administering competition. The the stuff about, you know, academics and what people major in and what their qualifications are when they're admitted, each school can handle that for themselves as they do with the, the overwhelming majority of their students. Nobody's telling them who they can admit and who they can't and how they educate. And I don't think the NCAA should be wading into those issues. If we we made it about competition, you know, you educate your students the way you want, I'll educate mine the way I want, and if you want to play, we'll we'll meet on the field at one o'clock. And if you step out of bounds, it's my ball. And if you foul me in the act of shooting, uh, I get two shots and we're done. Uh, that shouldn't be that hard to do because we are not going to determine what the better school is, who's got the better students, which degree is more valuable based
1: upon athletic competition. It's never worked that way and it never will. When I was in school at a full scholarship academic um, at two undergrad institutions, it paid for my books, my tuition, a meal plan. But I got no living expenses, and I had to work in the athletic department and in the and uh, Communications office to get spending money, pay bills. And you always hear the narrative that oh, scholarships are more than enough for these these athletes, you know, for payment. Which I know is, is bullshit. No, it's not. I mean, these kids deserve more. What will it take for that narrative to go away? When so many schools and conferences are getting million-dollar checks for the TV games, and the kids ultimately get nothing.
2: I think it's going to require one of two things. It will require
1: more uh, you know, more success
2: on the part of the, the, the players, people representing the players' interests uh, in court with lawsuits, uh, even though that takes an extraordinarily long time, and the courts have been deferential to the NCAA's position. And frankly, I don't think the NCAA is truthful, honestly. Uh, in the way they present this stuff, I think you could poke a lot of holes in the things that they've said and say that you know you were under oath when you said this. This isn't true. Uh, but the other part of it is, uh, I think the players are going to have to take it into their own hands at some point uh, with uh, with protests or boycotts. Um, they, have to, they, they have to just stop playing, and uh, otherwise they're not going to they're not going to get what they're worth. And you know, you had mentioned that you had gotten the scholarship as a as a student an academic scholarship, but whether it's an academic scholarship, music scholarship, whatever, there's no limit on what the school can give you. You know, you can you work for the school. And mm-hmm. so you know, nobody – you could have had an employee-employer uh, relationship with the school and, and probably did. Um, but nothing stops you from having that. They can pay you whatever they want, and you can make whatever you want out in, uh, in the marketplace. So if you wanted to work for a local newspaper or if you wanted to write a book or if you were a great musician, cut a record or be on, on television whenever you wanted, there's nobody that said, wait a minute, that's going to affect your status as a student. You're, you're, you're supposed to be here to learn. Somehow that's what we say to an athlete, that wait a minute, this is about education, and you're a student just like any other student. But no other student has a restriction on what they can be given except for an athlete. And I find that to be wrong, frankly, to the point of immoral. And the reason I think it's immoral is because as you know, Chris, we're, we're and I say we because of the enterprise, but we're taking these players and we're selling them to the highest bidder, not only for television but for apparel contracts, you name it, um and making billions of dollars as a result of it, everybody's getting their fair market value, has the opportunity to get their fair market value except for the player. Now, if we were running all this like they run division three, where the salaries were in line with the mission and, you know, they're not charging admission to the games and all that stuff. And I say, okay, well, I got no complaint about that. But we're not doing that. This is like the NFL or, or uh, the, the NBA. It, there's no difference in the way the contracts are structured or the, the revenue or the way, uh, uh, the way business is conducted except for the way athletes are treated and, uh, and the way they're limited. And I don't see any legitimate reasons for it, given the way business is conducted in the uh, in the, the college sports industry. And it is an industry; it's a multi-billion-dollar industry. Where I mean, it's crying out loud! I mean, and I don't I don't have a problem with how much guys are getting paid. But when you see coaches making five, six, seven million dollars a year, offensive coordinators in football are making over a million dollars a year. Baseball coaches in the Southeastern Conference, seven of them make over a million dollars a year. Why can't the athletes compete for those dollars too? And why can't they have endorsement dollars? Um, it, it, and they can't even transfer, right Out loud. And if we say they're students like any other student, why would they not be able to transfer to another school? Uh, and why would they have to sit out a year? And why would their previous school have the ability to, to tell them where they can and cannot go? Uh, that's a that's a non compete provision in an employee contract. Is what that is, and I, I, that strikes me as being. Being totally wrong
1: and, and impossible to justify. It. Well, I will agree that salaries are, are outrageous and ridiculous when we have teachers that are educating our kids and our youth that are barely making thirty, forty thousand dollars, and and I find them their positions more important than a football coach. And then you have, that yeah, well, yeah, you have yeah, athletic direct. I'm sorry, go ahead.
2: Well, I'm sorry to interrupt, I, 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 but but see that that to me. I, I understand the impulse and the feeling behind it. You're right. Like I, it, teachers and fire, you know, firefighters and police are not paid commensurate with what their contribution to society is. But, but I don't. I'm not saying that others should make less. It's not our coaches sure. shouldn't make as much, or, or musicians. You know, uh, Pearl Jam shouldn't make what they make for concerts. Or can you believe what Springsteen is pulling down when he's not as important as a firefighter? Uh, what I'm saying is that when when everyone else is, is making their fair market value based upon the, their value in this multi-billion dollar enterprise, what justification could we possibly have to tell an athlete, well, you get enough? And, right. and you had mentioned before about people saying, well, a scholarship is enough. Um, to what other person do we say you get enough in our society? We, we really don't. And I, I understand it's kind of easy to say, well, you know, I would have I killed you without a scholarship. I would have loved that. Well, I get that. I mean, I was very grateful that I had a scholarship, and I, I really enjoyed it. But you know, I was worth more, and and so many of these other athletes are worth more. And that's not just football and basketball players. You know, Missy Franklin was at the University of California, Berkeley, swimming in between Olympics, and she couldn't she couldn't accept her fair market value. She's worth more, and there's no reason uh, there's no reason to limit her or to limit anyone else. Um, it's uh, it's a phony argument, and amateurism is, as you know, it's a vestige of, of old England and, and, and beyond where the uh, the elites did not want to compete against the common man. That's all it was, and that's all it is in college, because this all started uh, back in the Ivy League uh, over 100 years ago when all the handlebar mustachio uh, <laughs> administrators in the Ivy League didn't want to compete against the unwashed masses. They wanted gentlemen competing against gentlemen. And in order to be amateur, you know what you got to have? You got to have money.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, and
2: and it's just wrong. And and especially when we're using it the way we are now in the last thirty, forty years, especially where television has uh, and 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 all of the exposure. I mean, think about this for a second. You, you know, you lived it, but. Like these these schools have media relations departments that are every bit as big and and, uh, and sophisticated as any professional franchise. Like you know, you got media relations for athletics because mm-hmm. of the interest in the fact that they're selling these players. And yep. you go to the NCAA tournament, they're selling the players. They have they they call them partnerships but they' they're they're, they're, uh, they're just uh, um, you know advertisers that are that are paying an enormous amount of money to get their products in front of the American public through uh, through the vehicle of uh, of power sports like they do with the NFL the major League baseball the NBA you name it.
1: so to follow up on your last couple of points, which have both been very good, so athletic directors and coaches they can kind of up and move as they please for new and higher paying jobs and these schools do put restrictions on what colleges these kids can and cannot transfer to, whereas when I was a student, I was able to transfer from Southern Miss to Louisiana Lafayette? No questions asked. Is it going to take some sort of legal movement for, for that justification to stop in athletics, to stop saying you can't transfer here?
2: It probably will, but I think the NCAA, uh, the first group of the NCAA, and when I say NCAA, I'm not just talking about the folks who work in Indianapolis and the NCAA office, but all the administrators at member schools. They're starting to wrap their heads around the idea that, listen, we can't keep saying that they're students like any other student and they're not employees and then try to enforce the non-compete provision against them. Like, this doesn't make us look good. We, We can't keep doing this. And when, you know, now with this, uh, you know, especially in basketball, there's this fifth-year sort of graduate transfer rule. So if you graduate uh, and you still have eligibility left, you can go to another school right away and play without sitting out. And that is causing a lot of consternation among, uh, among coaches because they're saying, hey, this is free agency now. And he's going free agency, well, first of all, in order to be a free agent, you've got to be compensated. There's no such thing as free agency among amateurs. And there's no such thing as free agency among students. But but what they're the problem is they're saying, Well now now we gotta hold these kids back from graduating so they don't leave and we lose an asset. And that's what, exactly what these players are. They're assets of the university. And and so they, they understand that there's a there's a disconnect here, there's a, a a problem with the logic of a student like any other student to be treated like any other student to have essentially a non competing force against them. Now look, nobody's arguing that you should be able to switch uniforms at halftime and go to another team. Nobody's saying that. That would be absurd. Uh, and you don't see that with you know they say well employees you can fire them then you can fire players now you can get rid of a player anytime you want kick them off the team anytime you want. You know the, the coaches have contracts, and those contracts have non compete provisions and and uh, terms uh, and buyouts and all that. And they let these coaches go left and right because they don't want to be seen as an institution that's going to hold the coach back because they may not be able to sign the one that they want. Uh, same thing with administrators. They move like crazy, and that's fine. But how can they how can they limit what the players do? So I think that's starting to change a little bit. Um, uh, you're seeing more and more uh, reticence on behalf of coaches uh, trying to enforce uh, these things where they say, well, they're not going to release the player More of them are releasing players because it makes them look so bad when they don't, but they don't like it. Uh, They want to be able to control their assets. And uh, in the smaller conference schools are basically saying, hey, we got guys getting poached off of our – they call it poaching. They're poaching them off our roster. And, hey, if your school is so great, the players should want to stay. You shouldn't have to worry about that. But if they want to leave, they should be allowed to leave, and I don't see why they should have to sit out a year, which is – it's one of two things. It's a penalty, which you know I think it's a penalty uh, to discourage them from transferring. But it's always been termed—it's been termed a year in residence, as if the players need, if they're going to transfer, they need a year in residence to get used to this other school and to get their feet firmly planted on the ground. Well, wh- why do they need a year in residence after going to college, but a freshman doesn't need that because the school they're going to—they're able to play right away. None of this makes any sense, and it, it's a player's rights issue. and, I do think it's changing, but one thing that could change, if you think the player's an asset, then then offer him a contract and pay him, mm-hmm. and then you can enforce a non-compete provision just like you would with any other employee. And then you're then you're incentivizing the player to stay, and you're incentivizing the player to behave the way you want, and you're incentivizing the players to perform uh, his or her duties in school because you can condition payment upon those things. And uh, and I think it makes perfect sense to do that. But uh, but that's a hurdle that the NCAA is not willing to, to, to go over.
1: And, and to follow that up, so my idea of my dissertation, the model that I have in mind, you know, when we when we chatted the other day, I used the word severing the academic-athletic relationship, which probably isn't necessary if the NCAA were to be written correctly for the reasons it was created. But in my mind, the colleges and universities would sponsor sports, sign these athletes, to a two- to three- to four-year contract, non-competes, to represent that school, wear their apparel, and focus on playing sports. College athletics would still exist, but as a farm system for these athletes to go pro, because ultimately that's their, their main goal. And they would have the option to go to school if they wanted to for up to six hours, and if they didn't, that's great. They just signed a contract, sponsored where the team that they're sponsoring, go about their business, no eligibility rules, stick to student and player. What are your thoughts on that proposal? And I want you to be brutally honest. Is that something that's sustainable? And or do you see a future with any of that?
2: Well, they could certainly do it that way. I don't think I don't think that would be very palatable because it would make it uh I think they like the idea of, of students playing ball. The the problem you know, students playing playing sports is absolutely fine and appropriate and purpose. There's nothing wrong with it. The problem that that the NCAA has is they see students playing ball. They've got to be amateur, and if they're if they're compensated in any way beyond the scholarship, that somehow uh, it's it's this dirty, horrible enterprise. And it's not. It, it, it's ridiculous to even suggest that. But that's the way they look at it. My thing would be, Chris, that that whatever model you want at your school, go ahead. I'm I'm fine with it. Um, I don't think the governing body of, of college sports needs to be telling needs to be telling each individual school. Well, here, here's the standard you have to meet. All your players have to get such and such a GPA. Uh, they have to have such and such a GPA coming out of high school and certain test scores and all that. Um, because we're dealing with so many universities that have different standards. You know, Memphis has a different admission standard and different uh, you know a different you know sort of rigor than Harvard. And they can still play on Saturday. That's fine. There's 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 nothing stopping them from competing in athletics. It doesn't matter how smart or or, or, or their kids are, or their players. Um, it doesn't matter how much their coaches are paid. You know, all these all these schools compete with different budgets, and nobody's saying, well, this isn't fair. This shouldn't have to happen. Everybody should have the same budget. You want the same budget? Fine. But we don't have to have restrictions in those areas. I don't see why we should have restrictions in in who plays and what GPA they need and uh, whether whether Memphis is as rigorous to get a 2.0 as uh, as Stanford is, you know, like you could certainly make the claim. Well, hey, wait a minute, you know, you gotta you gotta be a you gotta do a lot harder work to get a 2.0 at Stanford than you do at Memphis. Not, I'm not trying to cast the first about Memphis, but um, uh, what difference does all that make? You know, let, let's that doesn't have anything to do with who wins or loses a basketball or a football game. So let's just play ball and you educate your students the way you see fit. I'll educate my students the way I see fit. We've both got accreditation services that are, uh, are breathing down our necks to see that we're doing things the right way in academics. And, and the rest of it shouldn't be anybody's concern but our own. And if somebody wants to say, if your, your fans want to look down their nose at me and, and my school, have at it. And if my, my school wants to think that you're elitist and, and you don't get, well, that's fine. We'll, we'll think that. But, uh, at the end of the day, uh, who cares? Because we're not out, out in the marketplace saying, hey, our degree is better and your degree isn't as good and all that. Who cares? Let's just play ball. We, we've gotten away from what this is about. And all this is about is uh, these schools educate students. And they educate students, whether they're athletes, musicians, scientists, uh, literature, whatever. They, they educate students. That's what they do. Uh, and some of those students play ball. Some of them uh, compete in club sports. They do all kinds of different things. So why are we trying to micromanage a core function of these universities, which is the admission and the education of students through sports? Uh, why? Because we're worried that somebody's going to write an article that says, "Well, this kid isn't as smart as that kid." Who mm-hmm. cares? Let's just let's just play ball and uh, and you guys educate your students the way you
1: see fit. And we'll do it the way we see fit over here at Old State U, and and we'll be just fine in doing so. And one of the things that I've noticed in my research and and during my time in athletics is the APR and GSR numbers, they they don't prove anything. And I always hated trying to write these press releases with all the data I was given because I knew it's BS. It doesn't tell you anything. Do you think these numbers are going to continue being around to to fool people that, hey, look, student athletes, they graduate, and yada, 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 when the GSR doesn't even measure all the metrics necessary with transfers, do transfers graduate, et cetera. Are we going to keep seeing these metrics being pulled around till God only knows when? Yes, because the NCAA can say, look at this, uh, look how our APR has gone up. APR is academic progress rate, as you know.
2: It's calculated, it's such a simple calculation to the point of being absurd. I mean, I, I happen to think it's a ridiculous measure that really doesn't do anything, but the academic progress rate is just, uh, each player, uh, at the end of the year, gets a point for retention. So if they stay in school, they get a point. And if they are in good academic standing, you know, if their GPA is good enough, uh, and they've done, you know, they've done uh, their job in their classes, they get another point. And so those those two points are then there's a multiplier uh, attached to it to get it to a thousand. And so if you got a nine sixty seven or whatever. It does, that thing doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have any. It's, it's no predictor on how you're going to do in graduation. It doesn't even predict how you're going to what you're going to do in graduation. Um, so it's a, it's a meaningless number. But the NCAA is able to say, look, academic progress rate. Look how well we're doing. Um, it's it's like uh, it, it's like determining health by height. You know, it, it it doesn't mean like we're going to measure our health by height. Um, that doesn't mean anything.
0: And and so.
2: Well, I I applaud kind of the sentiment behind some of these things. Here's one thing that I said when the APR came in and when we started making too big a deal out of graduation rates. If, if we're going to tie uh, money and eligibility for postseason tournaments, which means money, to graduation, the first thing I said was, "Well, everybody's going to graduate then." I mean, and that, but graduation's not going to mean anything because the players, you know, they're not going to be educated. We should be doing things that we think are in the best interest of the education of our students. And that's not going to be accomplished from 30,000 feet by a governing body because, as we mentioned before, you've got so many differing institutions. You know, what's a great education in one place doesn't get you a C average in another. And so it really doesn't mean much. The marketplace handles all that. We don't need to worry about it. You know, these students are totally different, and these players are, are totally different as students, and these institutions are totally different. You, it, it, you almost can't even compare them. They're so different. So why are we even trying? Um, you know, we we don't, you know, the, the accreditation services aren't out there saying, well, you know, this school is easier than our other school, so you're not going to be, we're not going to give you an accreditation service. They've all got different mission statements. Let them, let them go about their business as they will. And we'll just play on Saturday. we can do it just fine we've got it. We've done it before the world was still on its axis. We can certainly do it now, and we won't be providing incentive for uh, uh, for the easier path because that's what we're doing right now. More players are taking the easier path than ever before because uh the schools feel like they've got to keep them eligible and they've got to do well with all these ridiculous numbers, and the ones that are suffering are, are the, the athletes and there's no reason for it uh they should be allowed to take what they want and if you if you take a really hard class that you want to take and uh let me give you an example because uh, i'm rambling on this so let me give you an example i was with a coach a few years ago when when uh this issue of academic steering was being was being talked about and the coach said to me privately said are they kidding like, they're saying that we, we shouldn't steer players into certain classes. Do They realize what we deal with day-to-day, and the coach was in a big-state institution. But, look, we recruit guys that were, were – they might have struggled a little bit, as students, but they get in here uh, along with every other student. We, we're not a high academic institution. But but a couple of our players have come in the last couple of, couple of years, and they've wanted to major in business, and they have to take some complex math courses for this business degree. And we've had to tell them, now, that's going to be a struggle for you. You might be able to do well in it, but it's, it's probably going to be really difficult, and it's going to put you in a bad position academically, and which puts you in a bad position athletically uh, with ineligibility. And so they, 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 they counsel them to look into some other areas. They go, if that's going to be called steering, if we let a kid go into an area where we know they're likely to fail, it's steering if we tell them, listen, this is not the right path for you. I think that's a relationship much like the doctor-patient, where you know these, these administrators and, and academic advisors—they can do just fine by their students. Let them do their thing, and and, and quit trying to characterize everything uh, like every like every student is Bill Bradley at Princeton, uh, because that's not what we're dealing with here. Let let them navigate their own paths. They'll be just fine without the NCAA telling
1: them what to do. Those are all good points, and I know I could talk to you for hours on these topics. But now to the really fun part of our conversation, eight rapid-fire questions to figure out the real Jay Phyllis. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. You've written a book. What would be the title of your autobiography?
2: Oh, boy, the title of my autobiography, um, Needless by Jay Phyllis. <laughs> I don't know. That's a good one. I, I don't know what I would call it. I, I don't think anytime you want to read that, nor would I want to read some of the things that have gotten me here. I'm, I'm lucky to be where I am, but I'd, I'd hate to look back and see, uh, see how, how I stumbled into where I am. <laughs> Who would play you in a movie on your life? Well, it would have been Brad Pitt before his recent split with Angelina Jolie, uh, but, uh, but probably Tom Cruise. Um, you know, I think it would be a role that would be really challenging for him due to my height, but I'm sure he could carry it off. <laughs>
1: if you were on a deserted island and could bring only one pair of sneakers which pair would you bring
2: i would bring a uh a blue pair of suede uh nike Bruits. and even though those would not be the uh, smart choice on a deserted island even if i'm all by myself i want to look good
1: fair enough i know you're not an emoji guy but what emoji best describes you
2: yeah, I'm definitely not an emoji guy, but it'd probably be that big pile of stuff that uh, that I see every once in a while that my kids send me, because uh, I'm certainly a pile of something. But uh, I wouldn't even know. But I would hope a smiley face. But uh, but I don't even know what's out there anymore. Maybe a thumbs up. My wife sends me a thumbs up every once in a while, usually when I when I agree to bring something home that she's asked for.
1: Thumbs up is definitely safer. Uh, if you could change one rule in college basketball, what would it be?
2: I would probably first, there are so many of them, but I would first go, uh, go to quarters. From We have two 20-minute halves in college basketball, and I would go to quarters, and uh, four 10-minute quarters. The reason I would do that would, would be the same reason that every other game in the world has quarters. We're the only one that doesn't now, including women's college basketball. It's so you could reset uh, team fouls at the end of the first and the third quarters, and as a result, uh, teams wouldn't be stuck with a couple of bad calls throughout the course of the half, and and we would wind up as a result shooting fewer free throws on common fouls. And uh, and I think it would make the game the flow of the game much better. Uh, timeouts would be easier uh, uh, because it is a television sport, uh, just like in FIBA, uh, the international game or the NBA. Uh, the administration's timeouts would it would be much much easier uh,
1: if we went to borders. If you were if you had to make a choice for your last meal, entree dessert and beverage, what would you choose? I would go with some sort of pasta dish. I uh I, I like uh, I have this pesto pasta dish that
2: I eat a lot at a place called Mama Mamarcadas I go to. And then uh then I would probably beverage, um, would probably be a really nice uh nice glass of wine. I like red wine, so Cabernet or Pinot Noir and then uh Ice cream for dessert because i eat a, I eat a ton of ice cream, as you probably tell from my frame, but uh, i like uh, I like mint chocolate chip ice cream, so I'd probably go in that direction
1: uh going back to your childhood, what was your favorite Halloween costume um i had a
2: i was a superman one one year but um, I grew up in the era of the costumes where I had these plastic masks with a little they had these uh little elastic things that that went around your head to keep them on. And they always broke. So, like, those those elastic things, it doesn't matter. You know, you would start sweating because, you know, you couldn't breathe in those things. And then they would break, which was extraordinarily frustrating for a little kid. And I was probably like the, the Seinfeld routine where, uh, you know, Superman, then my mom, right before I left to go trick-or-treating, says, no, I had to wear a jacket. And you're like, Mom, I can't wear a jacket over my cape? That's ridiculous. It's, it's, uh, it's, I always lost, I had to wear the jacket.
1: <laughs> and then my my last question, you've been around Coach K for a, a large majority of your life. What quote of his stands out the most to you?
2: Boy, there's so many. The first would be uh, next play. It's a concept that uh, that he used probably long before I got there. I don't even know where he got it. But um, it was just a trigger that we used to move on. So whatever happened on the court or off, positive or negative, we, we would say next thing and make a, you know, make a positive play on the, the very next play and not take ourselves out of it by thinking about what had just happened. And the other would probably be um, something that I heard him say to his USA basketball team a few years ago. He was talking to him about, you know, all the great things. He asked them to really take a good look at their uniform, that USA uniform when they got back to their hotel rooms and said, look, you know, we get to do a lot of great things and, and uh, that, that are so cool. And, yeah, you know, we do it so often that uh, that you can make the mistake of treating it as routine. He said, it's not routine. And he said, he said don't take special for granted. And I, I, that really hit me that, uh, you know, like you, Chris, I get to do a lot of things that I've always dreamed of doing, you know, the, the Carolina game or, you know, the Champions Classic where you get to do Kentucky, Michigan State, whatever it is. Um, and uh, so I, I take a, I really do take stock of that when I, I step into an arena now that, This is what I've always dreamed of, uh, not only as a player, but as a broadcaster and all that stuff. uh, I try to make sure that I don't take it for granted, that I I approach the job the same way, but but I I make
1: sure I I look around and I realize how how fortunate I am to be doing what I'm doing. Well, Jay, um, this has been a fantastic conversation. I'm grateful to talk to you twice this week. You're a gem. Love talking with you. Super intelligent. And uh, I really appreciate your time.
2: No, Chris, it's been my honor.
1: Good luck with everything, and thanks so much for having me. Hey, my pleasure, and look forward to seeing you on TV this year. Look forward to it, too, Chris. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jay. Have a good weekend. Bye, buddy. Take care.